Thank you for being here to worship our almighty God with us. So today, the title for today's sermon is Battle Preparations for Our Spiritual Duty in a Hostile World. Let's jump right in this morning with our memory verse that we've been working on together from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And it will be up on the screens for you, and it's also printed on the inside of your bulletin. So let us say it together. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Excellent job, everyone. All right, so we've been working our way through the book of First Peter, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and we have now arrived at chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. So let me begin by reading our text so that we may hear from God's holy and sufficient word. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the first letter of Peter, and again, we'll be looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And I'll be reading from the ESV or the English Standard Version this morning. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion, forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray for our time in God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, may your name be glorified this morning and throughout all of eternity. Thank you for your gracious work of regenerating our spirits from spiritual death to spiritual life. We lift up to you all those who do not know you and ask that you may work in their hearts through the hearing of your word and draw them effectually to yourself so they may repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We pray that the sharing of your holy and sufficient word this morning would be guided and illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Please renew our minds that we would all grow strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Help us to, put our, to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ in this hostile world, that we may stand firm against the schemes of the devil 
that we may carry out your will and be sanctified by your word, that we would courageously proclaim the gospel to all of the world. To you belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. And in King Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. All right, now that we've got the green light and we've dropped in on chapter four, let me orient us so we can get our bearings. Let me start by recapping three of the overall primary themes that we've been seeing in 1 Peter. First, the first theme is the already and the not yet. So Christ has already achieved victory over sin and death, and yet we are still awaiting the day of the Lord or the final judgment when Christ returns. We must remember that the end of all things or the consummation of all things could happen at any moment. So believers must be alert and be faithful and godly. The second theme is that we are currently living in exile. And Peter reminds his readers that they are true Israel living in exile in this world. And as such, their lives are to be characterized by the reality of God's lordship rather than the ungodly values of the world. And the third theme is that of our suffering as believers. Peter repeatedly turns his thoughts of his readers to the joys and glories of the eternal inheritance and instructs them about the proper Christian behavior in the midst of unjust suffering. Two theologians, G.K. Beale and D.A. Carson, give us a helpful overview of 1 Peter 1-11. through At least I hope it will be helpful. And they explain these verses as loving one another in light of the end. In verses 1-6, through Peter has been telling his readers how to arm themselves with the same attitude that Christ had if they plan on withstanding the opposition of those who heap abuse upon them. Above all, they must recognize that this present state of affairs is not the last word. The abusers will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Of course, that is also true for believers, who likewise must remember that the end of all things is near. What that means for their conduct is spelled out in verses 7 through 11. And the most important ingredient is articulated in verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Okay, now let me give you an idea of where we are going or a military lingo, the objective of our mission. I think the main idea we find in our text is that we must arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, live for the will of God, love and serve one another earnestly because the end is near. So I'll say that again. We must arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, live for the will of God, love and serve one another earnestly because the end is near. Then I've outlined these verses into two main points. The first point being verses 1 through 6, looking at the victory and vindication of Christians. We'll be looking at how Christ's example that he has set for us and how we are to no longer live in our former lifestyles. We'll also look at the reality of the coming future judgment. The second point, verses 7 through 11, we'll be looking at the essentials of prayer, love, hospitality, and service. So we'll discuss the importance of praying for one another in the light of the end of all things. And we'll also look at the essentials of loving, showing hospitality, and serving one another. So now that we're oriented and we have our bearings, let's begin. Starting with the first point, looking at the victory and vindication of Christians. Peter writes in verses 1 and 2, 
Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So let us look at Christ's example for us as how we are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. The since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh connects immediately back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And also early in 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 24. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you in an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Just as Jesus willingly embraced the suffering that a godly life so often provokes, we too must determine without complaint or bitterness to endure unjust treatment for identifying with him by arming ourselves with the same way of thinking. For some of you today, it may be the first time that you've ever been here. And I just want to say that we are so happy to have you with us this morning. So I actually believe there's no better place than you to be than right here, right now. And you may be wondering why we're talking so much about Jesus Christ and his suffering. So let me share the good news of the gospel with you now. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. God is the creator of all things and is holy and righteous. Thus, he cannot ignore or tolerate sin. And we are accountable to God. He has the right to tell us how to live, and humankind, we rebelled against God. As we read in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what is sin? Sin is the rejection of God himself and his right to exercise authority over those to whom he gives life. Once you understand sin this way, you begin to understand why the wages of sin is death. The Bible teaches that the final destiny for unbelieving sinners is eternal active judgment in a place called hell. But we read in John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, came and lived a perfect life of righteousness without sin and willingly went to the cross in our place to take the punishment and bear the wrath of God that we rightly deserve. He died and rose on the third day, conquering sin and death. As we read in Acts 1, verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God and now has ascended to heaven to be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. 
So what does God expect us to do with this information? That Jesus died in our place so we can be saved from God's righteous wrath against our sin? He expects us to respond with repentance and faith. Repentance means to turn away from our rebellion against God. Faith is relying upon and trusting in Christ's completed work upon the cross for our salvation. And I truly hope that those who hear this good news will repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior this very day. And as followers of Christ, who have been healed by his wounds, his death and resurrection has freed us from the bondage of sin in which we were once enslaved. We must now live on mission for Christ and be willing to face persecution, suffering, and even death for the advancement of the gospel going forth. Peter is calling us here to have strength, to be resolved, to steadfast firmness, just like a soldier preparing to go into battle. And just as our scripture reading from earlier in Ephesians 6 said, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Christians must stay frosty. This is a military lingo which means to be alert and ready for action without letting one's fear get in the way. And Christians stay frosty by arming themselves with the mind of Christ and putting on the whole armor of God when making our battle preparations for our spiritual duty in a hostile world. The reason why believers should embrace this mindset is that to do so is to cease from sin. Although suffering does purge and refine our faith, Peter does not mean that suffering renders the Christian sinless. And one theologian explains it like this. Peter emphasized that those who commit themselves to suffer, those who willingly endure scorn and mockery for their faith, show that they have triumphed over sin. They have broken with sin because they have ceased to participate in the lawless activities of unbelievers and endured the criticisms that have come from such a decision. The commitment to suffer reveals a passion for a new way of life, a life that is not yet perfect, but remarkably different from the lives of unbelievers. In relation to this, Christ's example, when he prays on the Mount of Olives before going to the cross, should both convict us and encourage us so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Luke 22, verses 39 through 46 says, And he came, out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. 
and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Then when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. We must remain alert, vigilant, and ready so as to live for the will of God and not our human passions, which Peter describes in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. To make a break with sin is to be to resolve not to live the remainder of one's earthly life for human passions, but for the will of God. When one suffers for what is right, it is an indication that one has renounced sinful human desires and embraced the will of God as a higher value. We are to no longer live lives according to our former lifestyles as we did before we came to profess Christ as our Lord and Savior. Christians must arm themselves with this thought. Sin is cosmic treason. Any amount of past sinning is enough. Put any remaining sin to death in your life by asking for forgiveness and repenting of it, trusting in Christ's completed work upon the cross. Confide in your brothers and sisters to battle alongside you by keeping you accountable and ultimately trust in God's strength to defeat the sin in your life. Now moving on to verses 4 through 6. Peter directs our attention to the future judgment. And these verses say, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So let's first take a closer look at verse 6 and its meaning, and that this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. So one pastor helpfully explains a section of text like this. Peter is speaking rather of the gospel having been preached to Christians who are now dead. These people had heard and believed the gospel while they were alive, but then later died. The word dead in verse 6 are people who are physically dead at the time of Peter's writing this letter. These people were not physically dead when they heard the gospel. They heard the gospel and believed, then died at some time after. So just to be very clear, there are no second chances after death to believe the gospel and profess Christ to be your Lord and Savior. So let's look at verse 5. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. How should we live in light of knowing the truth about the future coming judgment? We must boldly proclaim the gospel to all people, urging them to repent of their sin and trust in Christ. There may not be a tomorrow. And the prophet Malachi describes the day of the Lord like this. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like cows from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Also, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, 
describes the judgment before the great white throne like this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The helpful aid, which sits under the authority of Scripture for our understanding of this coming day of judgment, is found in chapter 32 of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, and it describes the things of the last judgment in three points. One, God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Second, the end, of the, uh, the end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy and the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice and the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and glory with everlasting rewards in the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast aside into everlasting torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And third, as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly and their adversity. So he will have the day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come. And they may ever be prepared to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. We must not allow ourselves to become complacent in our spiritual duty in this hostile world. Instead, we must always be watching in anticipation for Christ's return. We must arm ourselves with the mind of Christ live for the will of God, and serve and love one another earnestly because the end is near. Let us now move on to our second point, verses 7 through 11, that focus on the essentials of prayer, love, hospitality, and service. So we'll first discuss the essential discipline of praying for one another since the end is near. And verse 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Both mental alertness and vigilance are essential to effective and sustained intercession. We must remain vigilant and disciplined in our prayer life. What are some ways in which we be can become more vigilant in prayer? One way could be for you to join our prayer group that meets here at the church every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. 
I know that's pretty early for some of you and not early enough for others. Either way, we would love you, love to have you join us to pray with you. You can also pray comprehensively by praying for all the saints. Pray for and with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray for your pastor, church leadership, and church ministries. Pray for the persecuted church found all around the world that it would be able to stand firm in the evil day. Pray for our country and its leaders. Pray for all those who do not yet know Jesus Christ, that he may draw them to himself. Pray that God would bring about a great awakening. Never cease praying in the Spirit, because the end is near, and there is indeed great power in prayer. Lastly, verses 8 through 11 exhorts us in the essentials of love, hospitality, and service. These verses say, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter here is pointing us to the essentials of loving one another, showing hospitality to one another, and serving one another all to the glory of God. First, love covers a multitude of sins. The Christian life is to be lived out in a community of loving service. We see Jesus teaching about love in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, when he answers a question being asked by a Pharisee. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus taught that the love for God and for our neighbor fulfills the law and puts love first in our walk of obedience and fellowship. We do not truly love others if we find joy in exposing the faults and sins of others. Rather, love covers a multitude of sins. Peter once asked Jesus, how many times must he forgive his brother? And we read of this in Matthew chapter 18. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, let us be reminded that true love does not keep score, but grants forgiveness freely to every brother or sister who seeks it. Second, we are also told to show hospitality without grumbling. The responsibility of caring for the traveler or the sojourner and those in need is found throughout the scriptures. Hospitality was especially important in the first century when public lodging was too expensive or not even available. The Christian mission depended on believers providing lodging, food, and finances for those traveling to proclaim the gospel message. As one pastor explains, according to the Mosaic law, the Jews were to extend hospitality to strangers. Jesus commended believers who provided food, clothing, and shelter to others. However, the spirit of hospitality extends beyond tangible acts of providing meals or a place to stay. It includes not just the act, but an unselfish attitude so that what is done, no matter the sacrifice, is done without grumbling. 
What are some ways that we may show hospitality to one another? Maybe you'd be willing to show hospitality by opening up your home to host a life group beginning next fall or volunteer to be a friendship family and host an international student through IFI or even prepare a meal for a family in need. These are simply a few ways we can begin to show hospitality. Lastly, we are called to serve one another with your gifts, whether they be speaking oracles of God or serving the needs of the body. God's gifts of very grace are also described in Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. As for, the, as for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one in body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The purpose of every spiritual gift is to serve or build up the body. There are a variety of gifts, and here Peter breaks them down into two broad categories of speaking and serving. Whoever is gifted with speaking will minister through categories of preaching and teaching, wisdom, knowledge, and discernment. Whoever serves will minister through areas such as administration, prayer, mercy ministries, or help provide for the basic needs of others. And those who speak must communicate not human or personal opinions, but the true word of God, as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. Similarly, any serving gift is to be exercised not by human power, but by the strength which God supplies, that is in dependence on the Holy Spirit. Maybe you are aware of your spiritual giftedness, and maybe you're not. A great way to see how God has gifted you is to simply begin by serving. Some ways that you could begin serving here at Friendship Baptist Church is to begin praying through the church directory. Join a life group this fall. Volunteer to serve in the nursery or children's church. Come to the discipleship hour at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings and participate in one of the classes. Join the men for prayer and Bible study on Tuesday morning. Serve in Awanas or youth group. Help with VBS this summer. Or start reading good Christian books with someone in a discipling relationship. We should also be aware that gifts can change over time. So be willing to serve wherever there is a need within the body of the church. Everything the Christian man or woman does, if it is to be virtuous and glorifying to God, must be done in light of the fact that God is the one who supplies the strength for everything. Indeed, God's glory is the goal of everything, not just the exercise of spiritual gifts, but of all life and ministry. That such glory and praise comes to God through Jesus Christ reminds us that whatever gifts we might exercise, whatever grace we might experience, and whatever praise we offer to God is grounded upon and mediated through the life, death, and resurrection of the Son, Jesus Christ. So in closing, remember we must arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, live for the will of God, 
Love and serve one another earnestly because the end is near for the glory of God alone. Let us pray an old Puritan prayer titled The Servant and Battle. O Lord, we bless you that the issue of the battle between yourself and Satan has never been uncertain and will end in victory. Calvary broke the dragon's head and we contend with a vanquished foe who with all his subtlety and strength has already been overcome. When we feel the serpent at our heel, may we remember him whose heel was bruised, but who when bruised broke the devil's head. Our souls with inward joy praises the mighty conqueror. Heal us of any wounds received in the great conflict. If we have gathered defilement, if our faith has suffered damage, if our hope is less than bright, if our love is not fervent, if our creature if some creature comfort occupies our heart, if our souls sink under pressure of the fight, O Lord, whose every promise is healing balm, every touch life, draw near to your weary warriors. Refresh us that we may rise again to wage the battle and never tire until our enemy is trodden down. Give us such fellowship with you that we may defy Satan, unbelief, the flesh, the world with the light that comes not from a creature in which a creature cannot spoil. Give us a drink of the eternal fountain that lies in your immutable, everlasting love and decree. Then shall our hands never weaken, our feet never, never stumble, our sword never rest, our shield never rust, our helmet never shatter, and our breastplate never fall, as our strength rests in the power of your might. And in King Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.